You're listening to a free version of Fight to Repair podcast. To hear our full interview, consider becoming a premium subscriber to Fight to Repair. An annual subscription is just $5 a month and gives you early access to our original reporting, as well as exclusive access to our full-length podcasts, as well as premium events, including interviews with leading figures in the Right to Repair movement, and in-person events as well. To learn more, go to fighttorepair.news. What we really, of course, have been arguing is that we shouldn't have to get a whitelist of devices where we have gone to the copyright office and convinced them, yes, people need to repair toasters too. And no, it doesn't lead to piracy to let people repair toasters, which was actually one of the arguments. They said people were going to pirate music in their tractors. Yes, the best way to get illegal music is to spend six figures on the tractor and then hack it. It's silly. But you're at a venue that is the copyright office and is very sympathetic to the views of large rights holders. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Fight to Repair podcast. For those of you who are new, I'm Paul Roberts, publisher of Fight to Repair newsletter and host of this week's podcast. This week, we're bringing you an interview with Kit Walsh. Kit is a senior staff attorney at EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where she works on issues like free speech, net neutrality, copyright, coders' rights, and issues that relate to freedom of expression and access to knowledge, including the fight to repair. In particular, Kit is part of a team of attorneys who is arguing on behalf of the plaintiffs Matt Green and Bunny Huang in an effort to overturn parts of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, or DMCA, a key 1990s-era anti-piracy law that, a quarter century later, is being used by device makers of all stripes to sharply curtail the ability of owners, independent repairers, artists, and others to modify, service, and repair all manner of devices from toasters to tractors. The case is a key battle in the fight for the right to repair, as the DMCA provides the key legal justification that manufacturers like John Deere use to limit access to their platforms. In this conversation, Kit and I talk about the case and about the burden the DMCA places on individuals, our economy, and society. Just a note, this interview was recorded back in late 2021, And since we recorded it, a federal appeals court in December 2022 ruled against the plaintiffs Matt Green and Bunny Huang in the case challenging the DMCA. The court essentially determined that since the Justice Department had promised that it wouldn't pursue Matt Green if he published a book on how to circumvent software locks, that therefore he lacked standing to sue to overturn Section 1201 of the DMCA. It's unclear whether their attorneys are going to appeal that ruling, an appeal that would likely end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. So I'm Kit Walsh. I'm a senior staff attorney and assistant director at EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, where I specialize in a lot of things. It's still a specialty, but it is a lot of things. I work on net neutrality and artificial intelligence and copyright and free speech, and especially relevant to today is all of the ways that weird mutated forms of copyright law interfere with your ability to understand, control, and change the technology that mediates your interactions with the world. So that involves litigation, as well as working on regulatory proceedings before the Copyright Office and elsewhere 
and working on legislative approaches to either fixing or mitigating the harms of these overbroad laws. And you have a really interesting background. You went to Harvard Law School. Before that, you were at MIT doing work on things like artificial intelligence and robotics and stuff like that. Just give us a little bit of your origin story and how you came with that background to the law and how you came to be focused really around these issues of intellectual privacy, intellectual property and protecting creative expression. Yeah, I came to it in maybe an unusual way, but I was a neuroscience undergraduate and I was really interested in brain-computer interfaces. And so this was at the time that researchers at Brown and elsewhere were putting arrays of electrodes into your premotor cortex and using it to control a mouse cursor. And I was just really fascinated by that. So I was at MIT's Media Lab in what's called the Biomechatronics Lab where we were working on making a robot that was actuated by frog muscles. And it turns out that's something you can do. I don't know why you would, but you can. And in any event, that's why you do it, because it's cool. You could make a robotic frog. Making cyborgs, you got to start somewhere. But maybe you don't have to actually go so far as to make that technology real if you're in a world where what that means is that government was going to have a lot of power to to basically spy on what you're communicating and thinking. And particularly if you don't ultimately have the ability to understand the code that is going to be affecting your life and, or to make sure that it's doing what you care about. So this is all the sci-fi future version of you've got your phone and it mediates what information you can get access to and how you can communicate. You've got your tractor that you're trying to use to farm. And when it breaks, you're not allowed to fix it because there's secret code in it. All of the battles that are very relevant today. My origin story is coming into it from a futuristic angle, right? But all of these are very real and very immediate concerns that are affecting people's rights and particularly people with disabilities, either print disabilities who can't read a traditional ebook or who need to repair their own accessibility devices, but also just everybody who cares about having secure and trustworthy devices out in the ecosystem and in our lives. So that's the whole arc from what's salient today to how if you were writing sci-fi about how it could go wrong, that would be maybe what we're working on in in a few decades if things don't go right sooner rather than later. Yeah. Or maybe even one or two decades. We're in a world where in the middle of a pandemic, you can have Philips suing independent medical device repair people for doing things that they called it hacking. They're trying to understand and fix devices that are being used to treat people. And they're not incompetent to do it. There's always this myth from the manufacturers that we're the only ones who are smart enough to do the repairs. Apple went so far when it was fighting the right to repair legislation at the state level to say that if you repaired your own iPhone, you might cut yourself on the glass or something. It's silly, but it can resonate, particularly the more that you have decisions being made by people who aren't accustomed to repairing their own devices. It might seem, how would you have the expertise to do that? And so that's something that we're often educating decision makers about is no look there there are these communities of people who are 
completely capable of and interested in doing this. So one of the things that you have written about and litigated a lot about, of course, is DMCA, which is a four-letter word for any artist or creative type in the United States. That's a Digital Millennium Copyright Act, a 1998 law that was passed. For folks who are watching this who aren't conversant in this, aren't familiar with the DMCA, could you just give us a sort of two-minute version of what the DMCA is? and how it constrains things like repair, modification, tinkering, those types of activities. For sure. So there are two major provisions of the DMCA. The one that impacts the things that we're talking about today is called Section 1201. And I've described this as one weird law that keeps you from doing security research, making remix videos, and even repairing your own tractor. How is there one law that has all of those negative consequences? And the answer is that back in the mid nineties, you wanted the two minute version. So I won't get into the way that the law was laundered through an international organization to put pressure on Congress to pass it after they didn't want to. That's all true, but they did pass it. And they thought that what they were doing was prohibiting people from descrambling those fuzzy staticky cable channels that you're not subscribed to. And so they wrote a law that made it unlawful to bypass an access control on a copyrighted work. But they also thought that there was this separate thing called a use control. So if you had access to it, but you wanted to you know, make a fair use of it, they wrote a different part of the law governing use controls where you were only liable if you actually infringed someone's copyright when you did that. In practice, those things have merged. So if you want to make use of the software in your tractor, you need to bypass an access control. This is according to the way that the case law has worked out, as opposed to what Congress intended when it thought these were going to be distinct categories. Because you have to bypass some technological measure, and because the code is probably copyrightable, now, in when you do that access, if you read it without authorization, you have violated this law. And that is a huge departure from all of the history of copyright law, which started out very small and then expanded and then courts narrowed it. And we have what's called fair use that traditionally protects research and repair and remix videos, expressive stuff building on other people's copyrighted works. and. A really bad court decision said that, you know, the way they read the statute, Congress had eliminated all of those things if you are bypassing an access control in order to do it, because it's not written clearly enough into the law that those limitations apply. Suddenly, the entire universe of really critical limitations on what a copyright holder can ban are erased. And so if they put a technological protection measure like DRM, encryption, even the flimsiest little easy-to-break DRM, once they put it on there, they've got the benefit of this law. And so that means you can get these anti-competitive practices like barring independent repair. It means that you can bully security researchers so that the flaws in your product don't get discovered or disclosed. And it means that if you are a Hollywood major studio, then you have this leverage to prevent expressive remix, things that would be fair use 
from actually getting made and try to demand a fee or just not let it happen because it's not worth your time to license it or because the message is contrary to your values. So the traditional limitations on fair use are, according to the Supreme Court, what makes it compatible with the First Amendment. And it's really clear why, because otherwise it blocks all of these expressive and important uses. We got into this topic talking about a different value, which is just your right to not only understand, but also control the devices in your life, right? So if you are constrained by what your technology lets you do, it's really important that those constraints not just be unilaterally imposed by the companies that sell you that technology. That's harmful to your liberty as well, albeit in a way that that is harder to assert in the American legal system. The caveat to all this is that there is a part of the law that allows every three years folks who want to circumvent copy protections in some way, shape, or form to do so with permission randomly from the Librarian of Congress, who is empowered by the DMCA to make these decisions. Talk to us about that process and what we got out of this most recent series of rulings from the Librarian of Congress. So this is a process that we've participated in every time since the law was passed, except for one where we were basically boycotting it because they weren't granting anything worth fighting for. That was back in 2006. Since then, we've actually gotten some pretty important exemptions for things like jailbreaking your phone so that you can install the apps you want or switch to another carrier, educational uses of videos, use of short clips in documentary films, and a bunch of scattered exceptions. Back in 2015, we pushed for the first right to repair exemption. And so that was focused on cars and farm equipment. And we sought and won exemptions not only to repair and diagnose, but also to modify the software in your car, which people were doing to make the display less distracting or to fix problems and give themselves a better way of diagnosing and understanding what was going on with the vehicle by not just relying on what they're given by the manufacturer. So that's great. We have expanded that each cycle since then to encompass the repair of some other devices. We got home appliances last time. But what we really, of course, have been arguing is that we shouldn't have to get a whitelist of devices where we have gone to the copyright office and convinced them, yes, people need to repair toasters too. And no, it doesn't lead to piracy to let people repair toasters, which was actually one of the arguments. They said people were going to pirate music in their tractors. Yes, the best way to get illegal music is to spend six figures on the tractor and then hack it. It's silly, but you're at a venue that is the copyright office and is very sympathetic to the views of large rights holders. So it is an uphill battle. So we've gotten some important victories, but there are also just structural limitations to that process. And the most important right. one, I would say, is you can only get an exemption to do the act of circumventing. So you can repair your own tractor. You, a person with print disabilities, can hack Adobe's DRM in order to yourself right. read an ebook. But 
no one is allowed to give you those tools. That's prohibited under the trafficking provision, which sounds very serious. And what it means is sharing technology and knowledge about how to do these things that decades, centuries of copyright law have recognized as legitimate. The Copyright Office has recognized as legitimate, but giving you the tools to do it, there isn't a mechanism in the statute that that lets the librarian give you permission to do that. So in theory, every person who wants to take advantage of these exemptions is going to break the DRM or the encryption themselves. In reality, someone else will violate the law on trafficking and they will get the tool that way. So it's a weird system that kind of works because there are people defying the law um, or at least taking a risk under the law. So we've always viewed it as worth participating in because of the gains that we get and also because it highlights the problems with the regime overall. But it's definitely a problematic system in the sense that it both doesn't have enough power and it has too much unbounded discretion. You're listening to a free version of Fight to Repair podcast. To hear our full interview, consider becoming a premium subscriber to Fight to Repair. An annual subscription is just $5 a month and gives you early access to our original reporting, as well as exclusive access to our full-length podcasts, as well as premium events, including interviews with leading figures in the Right to Repair movement, and in-person events as well. To learn more, go to fighttorepair.news.
stuff. 